Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Steve Mulcahy. Steve is the CEO of Contact Originators, the largest independent studio and plate making facility in the UK and Ireland. Uh, Steve, very warm welcome to you and thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. Great to speak to you from a sunny Manchester for a change. Yes, um, it certainly is a nice day forward, isn't it? Sun um, across the uh, the UK. Spring seems um, has sprung finally. Um, I suppose we should begin by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although we are starting to see some green shoots appearing and we're moving out of social restrictions, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic as we record this in mid-June 2021, and we have been for the best part part of 14 months now and it came as a bit of a double whammy didn't it the start of the covid lockdown back in march last year because i understand your business was victim to a great fire which significantly limited your production capacity and then covid came along just a few weeks later so with that sort of double pronged threat to the business steve just how has it been for you sort of coping and bouncing back over the last 14 months Yes, Scott. Uh, in uh, early January, we had a, a fire which wiped out 50% of our production capacity, yeah. uh, which was unfortunate fortunate to say the least. Um, we bounced back from that within a couple of days and with support of some friendly competitors and our customers to be able to reopen uh, basically over that weekend and start to supply our market again. Um, can't thank um, our supporters enough, um, but it, it epitomizes the support that we've got from our customers alike. And our staff, uh, obviously, uh, they've been fantastic. Um, everybody's part of team contact here. And overnight, we basically had to move our production from 24-5 to 24-7 uh, to make the, make up make up the shortfalls as well as service the customers uh, as they uh, saw fit. Um, and then you're quite right, less than probably six or eight weeks later, COVID lands on on our door. So we had a double whammy, um, to, to say the least. Um, we managed again with COVID through planning, um, support of our team and customers to, to, to ride that initial storm. Um, initially, 50% of our staff were sort of um, working from home. Uh, while the production guys stayed quite active on site. And we managed um, the safety of the staff through COVID protocols, etc., cetera, to, um, to, to, to deliver the service uh, without the hitch. Um, in our game, we are measured by, we supply printers with printing plates. Um, and we're fortunate that uh, the industry that we supplied, which was food, drink and medical, um, has held up very well. And in fact, um, during the period um, of last year's trading with the fire and COVID, we still managed to see a 20% growth in our business at the end of the year. 
It's a remarkable bounce back, isn't it? Seeing that growth there. And I suppose it feels like just reward for the efforts that you've put in to sort of mitigate the impact of the fire and also COVID and having bounced back from that so well. Um, I suppose looking back to the very sort of early weeks of the uh, the pandemic, you talk about sort of leading a team of people, which essentially was divided, wasn't it? You had um, a cohort working from home and adjusting to a new working procedure, but also some yeah. people working on site as well. Um, for those that sort of carried on as normal under safety protocols, um, was it quite easy for them to sort of focus, get their heads down and carry on working? Or was it a case of having to sort of carefully manage people's anxieties, George? During that time, we had to take into account obviously uh, the, the mental health conditions that were was generated uh, through COVID, and it was very it's it's very key for the business. We have a very strong HR function and department that looks after our team's welfare. And during the pandemic and continuing now, they they have uh, we actually introduced a 24-hour helpline for them, uh, which gave them the opportunity to to discuss confidentially um, any concerns that they had. Um, plus, we have uh, had robust health and safety policies keeping our team safe. The people at home, um, I mean, obviously, everybody's now been working remote. A lot of people remotely and uh, using Teams and Zoom, and that became the norm. Um, Everybody rallied round. Everybody um, still performed as if they were working in that team side by side. Uh, And all that was through electronically and uh, the the, the age of the Zoom meeting. So it worked worked quite well, but our key thing was to make sure that uh, the welfare and any pressures caused by COVID um, was uh, w- w- was was controlled and supported the team to ensure that they were okay and could carry on doing what they do. Yeah, and I suppose having to adapt to sort of leading people remotely is also a challenge as well, isn't it? Because I guess it's difficult to pick up on certain social cues um, as well, and I guess it's a whole new way of working that you have to get used to the flexible working side of things, and it's been like that. Um, for a lot of people, it's come out out of necessity as the remote working over the last 14 months. But it looks as if in some way, shape or form, it's going to be here in the long run as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, at the moment, we've still got uh, about 20% of our employees still working at home uh, as we speak today. I mean, that's obviously a lot of talk of 75. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it, it will continue, of course, um, you know, the, the, the extension of the uh, lifting of, of the, the further restrictions uh, by a month will uh, will see us continue to support and give the staff the opportunity to stay safe. Uh, whilst we're, we will bring them in as and when we feel it's, we're safe to do so and guarantee their safety uh, on site. But, I mean, at the moment, they're still working and, and functioning well. Um, and we're fortunate that some of the roles that uh, we have within the business can be done remotely, certainly over this period of, uh, of COVID-19. And do you think that there'll be some remote working within your business in the long run then, or is it more than likely you'd like a wholesale return to sort of working practices as they were pre-pandemic? No, I think uh, at the first opportunity, uh, the remaining guys currently working from home will will, will come back onto site. Uh, we also have um, people that uh, work for contact but actually are based on our customers' sites, on Prince's site. 
And again, we are led by uh, the, the health and safety uh, restrictions and how they see uh, the phasing in back to people working on site again. Uh, so we will have everybody back to work at some stage. It's just when, and uh, hopefully, you know, this latest extension will will be the last. Uh, but at the moment, the people that are working at home can do so, but eventually we'll be back on site. Yeah, and with, of course, um, that extension having happened now, being confirmed, of course, yesterday on um, June the 14th, that Freedom Day on the 21st won't be going ahead and it's now been pushed back to the 19th of uh, July. Um, even with that, are you sort of optimistic that um, the sort of landscape um, for the economic recovery is a favourable one for your business moving forward? You've had that sort of bounce back in the latter part of last year and now you're looking forward to the future and you can see some real green shoots there now. Yeah, we are. I mean, we we took possession of our new facility. Uh, and we're up, been up and running in our new facility from Easter this year. Uh, as I said, sales have been very buoyant. We're fortunate that we're you know providing the service to the food, drink, and pharmaceutical industry, which is obviously been very strong even through the pandemic. And uh, through new investments and innovation um, in machinery and equipment here on this site, uh, which we've created, which is relatively unique, um, I I see a a strong future, even with the continuing extension of the COVID uh, restrictions. And I'm I'm hoping for us all that the next four weeks are going to be the last um, and that we can start to... uh, you know, enjoy life uh, a, a little bit better, even though I understand COVID may be around for some while yet. I think it's also important for our staff that have gone through such a traumatic time and uh, along with many other employees in, in, in many other industries throughout the last year, um, that, that they can get some normality. Everybody is looking forward to holidays. Um, I mean, obviously, the staycation seems to be very popular right now but i'm just talking today with a couple of guys that has been on holidays last week and this you can see the benefit of just being away and having Mm. the opportunity to sort of turn the mobile off turn the emails off and just try to get some sense of normality even in in the uk uh, which is not a bad place to holiday anyway and i think we need that as business leaders as well don't we because we've been in survival mode over the course of the last 14 months um, even longer of course for yourselves back to last january and having to do that sort of get into that mode get sort of sucked into the hectic world of keeping the business afloat and then looking after everybody's mental health and well-being either within the building or from afar it can become quite mentally taxing can't it and we need to take time ourselves to step back and recharge the batteries yeah. when we need to yeah I, I i agree with that even myself you know i'm actually taking up my first holiday uh, in a couple of weeks time yeah. uh up in the lake district so i'm looking forward to that because as i say i think it it's not. It's been an exceptional last 12, 14 months, uh, not just for Constat, but for everybody. And um, you, you know, I, to, to, to see how COVID has, has disrupted, you know, not just the UK and, uh, and industries and people's lives, but globally. You know, nobody would ever ever predicted that this would be such on a on such a grand scale. But I, I agree with you. I think um, you know it's time also where, where possible to ch- recharge your batteries and face up to the next six to 12 months, try and get some elements of normality, spend time with your families, um, and, 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 and you know go forward together, and um, let, let's beat this hands down. 
And I can imagine at contact as well, having survived that sort of double pronged threat, as we've already talked about, I suppose you're emerging from this feeling more resilient and stronger than ever going into the future also. Yeah, I'm I'm confident. I'm really pleased with my team, really pleased with my team because um, I'm only as good as my team and to be able to lead a team like I like, like we've developed and created a contact uh, I'm full of admiration and respect for them because without the uh, flexibility and you know sort of commitment to the company you know we could have been in a different position now but I'm pleased you know really pleased for them and it, it's good for them as well because we're a growing company we're investing in latest technology and innovation we have a strap line which says basically, you know, leaders never follow. And we work very closely with our uh, supply partners as well as our customers to um, deliver a service which we believe is second to none um, with plenty of opportunities to grow in the future. And in terms of that sort of growth that you're forecasting, where exactly would you like your business to be this time in a year as we move out of lockdown just before we wrap things up, Steve? Well, I'd like to think we're, we're in a much stronger position. Um, we'll have more stability as regarding once, once we get back to normal after COVID. Uh, we'll be able to utilise the, 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 the latest technology that we've installed in this new facility and create new opportunities for us. I'd like to think we continue on the growth pattern that we are. We are taking and employing more people. I mean, during the, the, the whole COVID situation, we never furloughed anybody and we never had, fortunately, any redundancies associated to it. I know there are some companies out there that are, are not as fortunate as us, but we're still growing as a company and it gives people the opportunities to grow with us and create sustainability and security for their families as well. And long may that continue, absolutely, Steve. Um, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure and a real eye-opener welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. And it's been wonderful to hear how Contact has survived and thrived during this time. And I think as we begin to understand more about what sort of shape the economy in the post-COVID world is going to take once we move out of these restrictions for good, hopefully, um, it would be good to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along at that stage. Yeah, that would be great to do that, Scott. And uh, as I say, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to uh, to, to put the contact story across and be uh, part of this uh, great scheme that you have running and uh, the Leaders' Council. So, you know, I wish you all the best when continuing with with the projects that you're developing. Thanks ever so much, Steve. Um, That's what we're all about here, getting the authentic voices of British business leaders out there into the national sphere. So thank you once more for taking part and also take care and stay safe with all that is still going on because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but we're almost there. No, No, and the same to you, Scott, and all the guys down there at the Leaders' Council. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Steve Mulcahy, CEO of Contact Originators, onto today's programme, a fantastic story of survival and resilience. And here at the Leaders' Council, we also like to bring across a diverse range of perspectives on leadership, and therefore we'll be joined next on the show by England's World Cup winning hero of 1966, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, Sir Jeff is a former professional footballer and manager who enjoyed an illustrious career, but he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only player in history still to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final, which of course came on that famous day at Wembley in 1966 as England beat West Germany 4-2 after extra time to lift the Jules Rimet trophy. Um, He'll be joining us on the show next. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and... Goodness me, that's uh, nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours 
And this goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. the walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. 
Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about Covington and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you, you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your 
career after it's playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as 
Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a big field player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62-63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, 
I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him 
purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. You know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. At West Ham, we was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final, so it was a, a marvelous time for for that particular club. And very close, we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on the, on the goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably 
that's happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing the group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.